0: got a lot to say about the world i occupy every day but when i say what's on my mind i find i piss people
1: off this is what the folk real talk and raw tunes for revolutionary
2: times i'm sarah baronowskis and i'm joy damiani if that's a surprise to you check out the last episode there's a whole explanation
1: This week, we're going to bring you the first of two episodes about the TV show MASH. We uh, both have been crawling out of a MASH hole for the last several weeks, and we hope you will enjoy nerding out about the show as much as we enjoyed nerding in the show. I don't know
2: (laughs) if that's a thing. We nerded all the way into
1: it. We nerded to MASH and back. Yes, indeed. I just lost my train of thought. Hold
2: on. It's okay. Your train of thought was about to take you to where we ask people if they love us to rate us and review us. Also, uh, what's another good way to show love? Oh, sharing. Sharing is caring. That's right. Sharing us with
1: your friends. And five-star ratings on iTunes because that actually helps their algorithm with visibility.
2: Yeah, it does. And, uh, you know, we're all about, you know, being being algorithm helpers. We can't help everyone, but... um. We can help the algorithms. All right. Well, in order to get us in the mood, I decided to learn the M.A.S.H. theme song on my ukulele and record myself playing it. So here we go. My version of Suicide is Painless by Johnny Mandel. It's... It. jump right into synopsis let's be let's see let's be cordial hi 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 to our friends we're so happy that you're here with us we're doing a special thing the next couple of episodes where we don't have a guest so we hope you like the sound of our voices um and uh yeah so sarah got me into the show mash a few months ago and we both sort of devoured it and so I want I, I Sarah you should talk to talk to the people about how you discovered MASH and what the show is about and why we both give a shit about it right now.
1: Yeah, so um at the beginning of the year my partner got sick not with coronavirus but with like a stomach digestive thing. So he just kind of threw MASH on because he watched it when he was younger and I really wasn't paying attention to it. And then I all of a sudden looked up at one episode when, like, the hospital was being bombed and people were running around. And I was like, this was a fucking popular American comedy? What the fuck? Like, you never see anything like this on TV today. And I got pretty sucked in. So a few episodes after that, I started telling Joy that I was watching it. And Joy started watching it.
2: I started watching it. Oh, my God. And I was, and I had the same reaction. Like, how, how is this allowed to be on TV? It's so obviously critical of, you know, the war in Korea um, and all wars, all U.S. wars, because they've all been the same. Like, all, all of our foreign wars have been modeled on the same sort of, quote-unquote, intervening to liberate and bring them freedom and democracy bullshit line.
1: Yeah, I mean, that was the thing that just struck me about MASH so much was it was always very clear that our presence was not helpful in Korea because um, the show was right. set during the Korean War um, at what they would call a Mo- Mobile Army Surgical Hospital. So the idea with the MASH unit was they were located close enough to the front lines to be able to triage um, soldiers that had been injured in the, like in the battles, in the war zone, but then far enough away that they wouldn't be getting direct fire. Um, Although they often did in the show, which was sometimes a good source of kind of perioding the military's inability to communicate within itself, um, which I thought was very
2: interesting and seemed to match up with some of your experience. Yeah. Yeah, there was a lot of parallels. So, okay, let's let's backtrack just a tiny bit because um, MASH... First, it was a book, right? Um, Richard Hooker wrote the book, um, and it was called A Story of Three Army Doctors, I think. And Colon and A Story of Three Army Doctors. Right, there was a fun little subtitle. And then it was turned into a movie by Robert Altman. And then it was turned into this spin off TV show, which was wildly successful and ran for 11 seasons. Which, um, I don't know any other sitcom that has successfully run for, um, 11 seasons off the top of my head, do you? I don't, actually, but, um... And stayed interesting and relevant?
1: Yeah, I mean, that was a thing, like, the writing stayed really good through the whole show, so... And we'll get a little bit nitpicky on, you know, if our show was written in the 70s, you know, looking at it 50 years later, there's going to be some stuff that doesn't hold up so well. But for the most part, I found some of the writing on that show to be as good as prestige TV writing, you know, stuff like The Sopranos or HBO shows. It held my attention. Yeah. But I think the main thing that really drew me into it was just um, realizing how you don't see this kind of message on television about war in America right now. And that right. it was just, I think one of the first things I said to you over messenger when I was talking about MASH was like, I don't understand how this show is so popular and we are still the country that we are. <laughs> like, I just don't yeah. understand how this could be such a big part of our national consciousness. And we didn't get the fucking memo. So.
2: I completely agree. It It made me... Both hopeful because of, you know, feeling like somebody else saw this reality and also completely depressed because I realized like even being a popular show for 11 years and having this very overtly anti-war message um, drilled week after week into the minds of the American populace (laughs) It didn't sink in that war is bad, and a racket, and a business, and and it's all exploitation that leads to the complete vilification of one group, one ethnic group of people, you know, in this case, Asians, which is still very relevant for reasons that I think a lot of us are thinking about right now. Um, so we'll go more into all of those, all of those interesting details and all of the reasons why, um, why it's completely, uh, (laughs) important to keep, keep this show in our consciousness. But yeah, so go ahead and like, (laughs) I didn't mean to get in the way of your synopsizing of like what the folk (laughs) were actually talking about here. Should we say like, I don't even know, like, I I don't want to like get in the habit of saying what the folk casually, because like. I really like the word fuck.
1: Yeah. So. All right. So I do kind of like being a little idiomatic with it, though. Being like, what the folk did? But we don't have to overdo it. <laughs> you
2: know? I don't know. We'll let the people decide. <laughs> judge us. Judge us, what the folk fam. <laughs> Tell us if we're being um, excessively puntacular. If we're pontificating too much. Ooh, you did that. All right, I mean, that, that's in the realm of all the dad jokes that exist in the MASH um, dialogue, so I'll, go ahead. Anyway, continue.
1: So what the folk is MASH about? As we said before, it's set in this Mobile Army Surgical Hospital. And what happened during the Korean War was they didn't have enough doctors to serve in the war, so they instituted a doctor draft. So the main character, Hawkeye Pierce, as well as a couple other surgeons, um, the cast changes a little bit throughout the show, but those characters are all draftees. Um, then there are other people in the camp that are regular army, some are also draftees serving in the enlisted ranks, if I'm not saying any army terminology correctly, jump in. You're right so far. Um... So the the main thing about um, this main character, Hawkeye Pierce, being a draftee is it kind of sets him outside of the army, and he isn't regular army. In fact, that's something they say a lot during the show is they aren't regular army. Um, And it kind of allows him to be sort of a moral commentator on the action um, that's happening and what he's seeing in the war. Um, That was something that was the show was sometimes criticized for being a little heavy handed. And I think it's just maybe me watching it in 2021 and realizing how little of these messages are on our TV at all right now or in our culture that I found it's fucking Mm -hmm. refreshing, quite frankly. So um, if people have watched mash at the time, maybe they would feel differently, especially as the show kind of became a little more dramatic as the series went on. But I appreciated the commentary um, myself Usually, at least, Um, Hawkeye is as as I describe him a. It's like if several Towns Van Zant songs came to life and decided to study surgery. He's a drinker. He's a womanizer. He's self-destructive, but he also has this really, you know, intense moral center that's kind of serves as like, the fulcrum that the show revolves around. So, um, so yeah, it's interesting. And then some episodes are a little more lighthearted and less war heavy you know they're just kind of like people trying to fucking keep themselves sane while being deployed in this crazy environment um by just you know pulling practical jokes on each other and drinking and
2: fucking each other and doing whatever they can to stay sane so which to me I watched it and I was like finally someone made a show about what deployment is actually like you know, it really is maddening, and you end up indulging as many vices as, you know, you can rationalize, and, you know, often, you know, becoming a worse and worse and weirder and weirder version of yourself, um, the longer you have to go on, uh, you know, normalizing a really not normal environment, you know, which is... The definition of how post-traumatic stress happens, you know, it's the, it's the irrational reaction to an irrational experience. So I thought the show, you know, which took place over the time of, like, the, the Vietnam War ending, you know, and a lot of public outcry. And then the U.S. essentially going straight from the draft into um, the stop-loss policy which we'll go into, but, like, there was a lot of, you know, civil unrest around the war during the time that this show is on, Um, and I'm not sure what kind of impact it had. I'm not an anthropologist or a historian, Um, but I do know that it was after that that the government decided it needed to take a a different tack than just grabbing people out of the civilian sector and making them part of the military.
1: Yeah. And I mean, there's, gosh, so much we could talk about, about how, I mean, that's one of the things that's been so eye-opening doing this project with you is, even for somebody that thought they were fairly informed about foreign policy and that was involved with peace work, um, you know, during the run-up into the invasion of Iraq and... Um, the war on terror shit, I there's still so little I know about the military and what life is like. And, you know, MASH, granted, it's a TV show, some wacky shit will happen on it, but the sense I got from it was the sort of claustrophobia and the, like, struggle to keep yourself sane and human and how that environment does eventually destroy everybody in some way. Um, mm-hmm. Or people... You know, whether it's literally through war or whether it's through their own habits or just through their own moral compromises that they have to make. And that to me was really powerful about the show. Um, like I got that sense. Yeah. I didn't feel like I had seen something that really gave me that sense before. So.
2: It did a good job of showing that in war there actually are no like good guys, particularly, and there also are no bad bad guys particularly there's people um there's actors in a war and you know everybody has good in them and everyone has bad in them but you know they're all participants and um everyone has their role and and the thing is that it it negatively impacts everyone and i feel like that show really illustrated very well how um how war negatively impacts the quote-unquote good guys and because to me one of one of my big moments of awakening in the military was realizing like obviously like I I knew that we were not always the good guys in the past but it was the beginning of you know the quote-unquote war on terror and um you know, we had just we had just started occupying Iraq, and I really wanted to think of us as the good guys. And then I realized how badly we, the quote unquote good guys, were being treated by the military. And um, you know, for the mash unit, it was uh, it was because of the draft and being literally forced to witness um, <laughs> the worst. that that imperialism has to offer
1: yeah that just made me remember one of the things i read about the show was that they did do a lot of interviews i mean at the time you know we didn't have the internet and um you know historical research around things wasn't as easily accessible but they did talk to a lot of surgeons who served in mass units i think in korea and vietnam i may need to double check that but a lot of those stories are true or based on true stories and certainly like the environment of sometimes doing surgery for like fucking like two days straight you're doing surgery on people and then you're waiting around for two or three weeks with nothing happening and then an influx of bodies comes in and you have to be up for like several days doing surgery just trying to put people back together and like uh, take care of like the worst people first like the people that are you know on the edge of death and deciding like who are you prioritizing and who you aren't and I thought the show did a good job of showing just like the psychic toll that takes on somebody,
2: or the psychological toll, rather. Yeah. And not only that, like, not only like the act of constantly, you know, f- being uh, constantly operating on bodies on the verge of death, but knowing that those bodies belong to teenagers mostly. Yeah. Who are only going to be either sent back to the unit where they just were or sent back to their home with really, you know, the unspoken thing always is when you're sent home, you're, you don't have like a, a life coach who <laughs> or a therapist, especially back then. There was no such thing as like you get assigned a therapist at the VA and they help you deal with what you just dealt with. Uh, with what you just survived. That doesn't happen. Um, and I thought that it, you know, it really spoke to that regularly. So we should talk about actors and who these people were and, you know, <laughs> a little bit. Get, give a little bit of visual because, like, we've we've literally, like, immersed ourselves. We, we went full immersion course on MASH.
1: We've just basically gotten a PhD in MASH studies, so... <laughs>
2: We geeked hard.
1: (laughs) Geeky as fuck. Um, Yeah, so main character, as I said, Hawkeye Pierce. He's played in the film, which we're not really going to talk about the film, but if you have that as a reference point for some reason, Donald Sutherland plays him in the film. Alan Aldo plays him in the show. His character is a little different in the show than he is in the film. Um, He's definitely got more of, like we were talking about earlier, that sort of defined moral center um, as well as the sort of drinking and, you know, womanizing tendencies. I mean, you know, like I said, tall, funny, dark hair, anti imperialist and self destructive is kind of my type. So, um,
2: <laughs> but. Tall, dark, and anti imperialist. Can we just like put that in all of the dating profiles? Yeah, tall, dark, and anti imperialist.
1: Self-destructive kind of helps, too. I don't know why. (laughs) I'd have a little bit of need a project.
2: (laughs) (laughs) You're more ambitious than I am. Uh, Yeah,
1: yeah. This is why I make great decisions. Um, But anyway, so he... made a
2: great decision to put us into the world of this show. So, okay, like, yeah, I agree with you. I like the character in the show better than the character in the film. Um, and since that's the one we are going to talk about mostly, we'll just say, like, Donald Sutherland, thank you. But, like, Alan Alda, kind of a genius, I want to say.
1: Fucking amazing acting.
2: Like, Alan Alda was someone
1: I've only really known as an older actor and mostly from playing Jack Donaghy's father on 30 Rock.
0: And I yeah. was just
1: really blown away. Um, not only in the fact he was kind of foxy in the 70s, but also just, like, fucking great performance. Like, I mean, this is, like, 11 seasons all over the map emotionally and um, psychologically. It was just, yeah, a really fucking great performance by Alan Alda throughout that show. Um, and he took over a lot of the writing and directing and the direction of the show, especially, I think, starting in the fourth season, which is where a lot of people said the show got a little preachy for their tastes, but... You know, like I said, 2021, it fucking felt refreshing. So I don't, I'm not complaining myself. Um, the other characters are his fellow surgeons. The first three seasons, that's Trapper John McIntyre. And I'm not remembering the actor's name. Who plays him?
2: Um, Wayne Rogers. Wayne
1: Rogers. Um, and then he's replaced in the fourth season. Wayne Rogers left the show. By um, B.J. Honeycutt, who's played by Mike Farrell, who continues on through the rest of the show, um, and those characters are slightly different. Um, I don't know if we want to get into that now.
2: We don't need to get into that now. It's just like I think it's. I think it's. It was important for me that like there wasn't a ton of character change out throughout the eleven seasons, eleven fucking years of the same premise, which it it amazed me that, like, every episode had something to offer. But um, the biggest thing was how the characters developed. And so I think, like, you know, although admittedly it was a very white male-centric show and cast, um, I think it did a good job of... A little, oh, it did. It did a totally decent job of you know stepping a little bit on the toes of the patriarchy and the empire at the same time.
1: Still, I think holds up for the empire stepping, the patriarchal stepping. Again, we'll probably talk about that more. The major female character in it, Major Houlihan, aka Hot Lips Hoolihan, who is played by Loretta Swit in the show. Her character goes through an amazing development and I think really does um, kind of highlight the struggle of women in the army um, and the sort of misogyny um, and also kind of going through her personal journey of realizing she doesn't necessarily need to define herself by a man, which probably seems a little basic by like 2021 telling standards. But like for the time, like I think, you know, she became a really compelling, complex and interesting character. And at the beginning of the series, she was just kind of an antagonist. Who was um, in love with another, like having an affair with Frank Burns, who was one of the other surgeons, who was just like a shitbag, true believer in the army kind of guy, but also
2: a total coward. So. Yeah, kind of your typical soldier bro type. Um,
1: Wanna be soldier guy. bro.
2: Because he was a surgeon,
1: but for some reason he wanted to be a soldier really bad
2: right he really he was a very typical like type who wants to define himself by the military because he doesn't really have anything better to define himself by he's not like good at his job and the interesting thing is that you know the one female character the one main female character major Houlihan, is um you know she's in this relationship to him, with him And while she's in the relationship with him, she's also, she takes on a lot of his characteristics. She's kind of like a shitbag, but like, but like wants to, um, you know, get everyone's respect, but is kind of um, leaning on military formality instead of on her own, um, her own accomplishments, which are, you know, often stated are like... A lot. She has a lot of accomplishments. She's a great nurse and great at what she does. And, you know, as the show goes on, you know, we're not going to spoiler alert anything, obviously. But the less connected she is with that character, those two characters are, the more her character develops. And I I think it's an interesting commentary on, um, you know, Misogyny, not only in the military, but in like U.S. culture, especially at that time, um, you know, the show is a product of a time of misogyny and, and of a time, of, you know, <laughs> just now we, ha- we still have the misogyny. We still have the patriarchy. We just now have different words that we use so that we aren't seen as misogynistic and patriarchal.
1: I mean, there's still definitely a hardcore male gaze to the show. Hashtag male gaze. Mm -hmm. But, um, (laughs) you know, I think, again, it's a show that was made 50 years ago, and it's set in the 1950s. Like, in, like, the early 1950s was the Korean War. Like, 1950, 1951. The show lasted,
2: like, four times as long as the actual Korean War. Well, when you consider that the war technically never ended... True. The police action, actually... (laughs) Yeah, I mean, we still have bases all over Korea, um, you know. All re- it, anyway, so, but like, yeah, the, the show lasted longer than active conflict in Korea. This show is a sitcom, and I think that that is perfect because um, canned laughter is exactly the vibe of laughter I always felt. On deployment
1: (laughs) Yeah It's also So the laugh track Was turned down On the show They fought a lot With CBS um, About the laugh track They didn't want it But they made them Include it And then as The show goes on There's episodes With no laugh track At all But if you I mean if you were To like compare it To other sitcoms All the time It's actually Audibly turned down So even the laugh track Is a little muted Like, they managed to get that one little win out of CBS at the beginning. So, yeah. Yeah,
2: Yeah, so, like, there's this laugh track, and all of the jokes are, like, kind of silly uh, in a way, but the backdrop of it all is, you know, they're all in a war, and they're all, you know, kind of making do with each other's company. And I don't actually know of any other sitcom in my life that has done that um any other like show that has tried to find the comedy in like the super dark backdrop of war that is like it's not it's not heavy-handed dark comedy it was just like i felt like you know, I always, I always played silly pranks on people during deployment because, it it's the same thing day in and day out, and the understanding that you're just a pawn, and that you're there to just serve, the government's purpose. So like, how can you not laugh at that? I love that it has a laugh track. Yeah, I love that it's a quiet laugh track, but I just I love it's sort of like a ha 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 isn't more funny because it's like there's times when like like you shouldn't laugh but that laugh track is like ha 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 right ha ha
1: yeah and i think they do a good job of mining comedy not only out of the characters and their relationships to each other and their neuroses and faults but also the absurdity of the situation itself that's yeah testament to the really good writing that they um managed to really mine a lot of humor out of a pretty fucking dark situation but do it in a way that felt really genuine
2: it the thing that really stuck with me is that it it made me sad that there is not a show like that anymore and and I was like oh man I wish we had a show like that about you know being in the Iraq war and then I thought okay well this show, if MASH is supposed to be set in Korea but sort of commenting on Vietnam, which it was then we would have to find like a different war 20 years, you know but like, the thing is the Iraq war has been going on for 20 years we're we're on the 18th anniversary of it, March 19th was the 18th anniversary of the Iraq war and um, it's, you know we don't have We can't set a sitcom there. We're still occupying. We're still actively, you know, operating there. We have installed our puppet government and we're just actively owning shit in Iraq.
1: Yeah, you'd almost have to, like, create an alternative universe or, like, make up a country or something, you know, to, like, pull off some kind of to even, like, you wouldn't even get it on TV, though. Anything anti-war, anti-imperialist wouldn't even make it, like,
2: to, I don't know if the, you know, you wouldn't even get your pitch heard, so. Right. Even on the quote-unquote left wing, like, nothing is overtly as anti-war as MASH was. Yeah. And it really, I feel like, shows how tightly the entertainment Industry locked into step with the military-industrial complex, and the in the U.S. And they were like, you know what? Instead of um, hurting each other, let's profit off of each other.
1: Yeah, and I mean, it is crazy too talking to folks that are a little older than me, especially people that remember watching the last episode. That was to this day the most watched scripted TV show of all time and probably will remain so because this was before cable and a million streaming or maybe cable exists, but there's like a million streaming services now. People don't generally watch the same things, but like that, I mean, everyone I talked to who's, you know, maybe a generation or so older than me, when I told them we were doing these episodes, like they remember watching that last episode. It was huge. Everybody watched it. And Mm. the fact that that is, was such a major cultural event and now it's like the whole message and point has just been erased from our yeah. culture. It's it's just really like right. It was a cultural moment. It was a unifying cultural moment. Clearly, um, there's a whole legend, and I think it might be an urban legend, but that the sewers in New York got like fucking backed up or something during the commercial breaks because everyone was using the bathroom in New York City <laughs> during the commercial oh breaks. That apparently. I love that. That might be a myth, but still, that just shows you either
2: way, like that it was plausible the fact that it would
1: <laughs> yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah.
2: So yeah, it really kind of blows my mind that an entire, essentially like an entire generation of people watched that show and watched that final episode, which is such an indictment. Of everything that war is, and especially what U.S. wars in Asia, um, you know, in, in Southeast Asia and in the Middle East now, which at that point we weren't there, but the same, you know, like that of all that these wars were and all the damage they did to people on both sides, it... It showed the um, destruction of humanity and the the mental breakdowns that even the strongest minds went through. It doesn't we don't get to see that anymore. On, like we get to see the breakdown of, um, you know, a meth dealer. We get to see the breakdown of, I don't know, who the fuck else? I'm trying to think whose mental breakdowns. Dennis Leary was a firefighter having a breakdown on Rescue Me. That was a great show. Tony Soprano had a breakdown. We got to see all of the Game of Thrones characters have breakdowns. We have not gotten to see a show where there is like a legitimate like sit, like protagonist who goes from a lovable, sweet character to a broken person in a scenario that, like, a super logical, rational mind would not be able to handle. But, like, we don't get accurate depictions of what happens to people in war and what happens to their minds.
1: Maybe this is a good time to kind of switch gears because... I would love to hear you talk more about what it was that rang so true for you about the experience of
2: watching that show. Oh, my God. So many aspects. I mean, one of the first things that the show commented on and that I felt resonated was, like, the extreme amount of xenophobia that um, being an occupying force in, in another country... Um, and genders you know the it you know it starts right away in on the ways that the koreans in uh, and around the base were treated and their purpose and you know they were either you know harmless or suspicious or um you know or useful in some way and uh and that was really like the way that Iraqis were treated around our um, around our base. And you know, when you think about you know, this has just been on my mind so much today, especially with these attacks on Asian sex workers. It's like the whole you know Asian exploitation. You know that a lot of that was was, I don't know if it was begun, but it was really exacerbated by our wars in Korea and Vietnam. and uh, all the soldiers who had gotten used to treating Asian women uh, like objects and you know and used to seeing them as all being either sex workers or um, servants. Um, and that, I mean, the show hit, just hit in with that within the first, I think, two episodes, three episodes. That And I was just like, wow, this is exactly, um, this is the same way we treated Iraqis. And it's the same way that we treat, you know, Middle Eastern women, specifically Arab women um, in our culture as like either belly dancers, you know, or you know, Burkhead, um, you know, Orthodox. Yeah. Like, or as this, as this, um, you know, it's either like the, the virginal sort of religious archetype or the extremely sexual, um, you know, archetype. And you know we see that we see that having <laughs> such horrible impacts on people in the U.S. now, um, but you know that I feel like that show does. It started in um, very, uh, very explicitly showing how our uh, how our presence in Korea, you know, or commenting our presence in Vietnam really just led to the entire population, but especially the women, being uh, used for the benefit of the soldiers.
1: And I think, you know, there's probably, again, 2021 critiques you can make of some of the portrayals of Koreans, but I was impressed that at least, even if the characters felt a little flat or, like, maybe a little stereotypical, that it was always very clear that their Their shit was fucked up because of something we did, <laughs> like our mm-hmm. presence had was directly responsible for um you know the struggles they were facing or the decision to have to prostitute themselves or whatever like that it was directly related oh, the way- to the American occupation and I thought that was really um well I don't know if they called Korea an occupation, but um I thought that that was a that. Was a real credit that the show never really lost the perspective that, like, no, this is related to us. Like, we, we right. did this. And obviously, you know, North Korea, you have to argue about China and the Soviet Union's involvement with North Korea's causing a lot of suffering too, as well, below the 39th parallel. But it was still, you know, they didn't ever let Americans off the hook in the show, they didn't propagandize or make us the good
2: guys fighting the bad guys. There were no good guys, really. Exactly. And they made it clear that they didn't, you know, the, I don't want to say they, um, the Hawkeye's character made it very clear on many occasions that, you know, he didn't feel like a good guy necessarily. You know, his job was patching people up to go back and be part of the war again. And, you know, I am um, I really related to that feeling of like they're telling us we're good guys but I don't feel like a good guy and that moral injury is something that you know we don't talk about in our um, in the in US culture we don't talk about it in the mainstream um and the impact that going against your own moral code and being a- applauded for it um, can have on your psyche <laughs> and like on the way you see everything the, the way you see everything patriotic of course so you see everything having to do with like any government narrative um but being told you're a good guy and not and not seeing yourself as one because of actual real reasons why you're not one and never being able to have that taken seriously and just knowing it and having to vent it in all different ways possible, I feel like that was one of the best recurring themes that um, it really accurately escalated over the course of the seasons. I think if anybody wants to know what it's like to to be on a deployment that feels like it's never going to end, um, which a lot of military, a lot of veterans have... Um, Experienced Watching that show Especially binging that show Binging MASH is a great way To um, Kind of experience The gradual uh, Mental breakdown That comes with knowing That you're Helping to hurt people And you're, um, you're Going against Your own morals and being called a good guy
1: Yeah, and that kind of, like, the repetition of their experiences, which they always manage to find an interesting new twist on it. Um, Obviously, with a show that long, some episodes are going to be better than others, but... um, And we'll get into some of the interesting narrative devices that I loved later, but um, I really got the sense of just, like, yeah, it's almost like you're in a loop, You know, like, the same things, like, you're hearing every day the copters, attentional personnel wounded in the compound, or you're, like, sitting around waiting, and it just, like, keeps happening like that, and I think a lot of people, even myself included, we have this idea of war as being a lot of action, and a lot of, like, things are happening, and there is that, obviously, that is why they're stitching people back together, but, yeah, I mean, especially your experience, what you've described, if you want to talk about that a little more, maybe... Um, just, like, the, re- the repetition and the waiting and the being, but constantly being on high alert, I thought was really interesting.
2: Yeah. It's hard to explain the feeling of, like, always knowing that something terrible could potentially happen to end your life um, to anyone who hasn't experienced it. Although now, during the pandemic, I feel like more people understand That feeling Which is very interesting It's an interesting um, Sort of uh, Side I don't know Side effect Of the pandemic Everyone knows what it's like To be hypervigilant now Um, But that was That was like a a constant um, On my deployments You're either Because you're always on duty Um, you know, my job was not to stitch people up at all. My job was way chiller than that. I just had to write convincingly morale-boosting stories about a war we weren't winning um, and never were going to win, and everyone knew we weren't going to win it. Uh, But I... Still, you know, like, it's the same routine all the time, and... Your downtime is so, um, it's so infrequent that you kind of don't know, like, what can you, what can you do with it? Like, I, you know, the major difference, of course, in my diploma is like, we were not allowed to drink. There was, uh, it was dried There was uh, absolutely, I mean, obviously like people found ways to sneak in to get alcohol. But there's no way that something like um, a still, a gin still, which is what Hawkeye and his buddies operated in their tent, would have been allowed to stand in our um, in our unit. Didn't so, have an um, officer's club. <laughs> I mean, I, I wasn't an officer. They probably had a club. I mean, I'm sure they had, like, a circle jerk area designated. <laughs>
1: <laughs> that was interesting, too, was... The way the show portrayed the class system in the army, I really wasn't aware of that. Again, showing the disconnect, even from people that ostensibly give a fuck about these things. that, like, I didn't realize there was that big class system between officers and enlisted and even different ranks. And I don't know, I thought that was really
2: interesting, the way the show would portray that. Well, yeah, and of course, back then, almost everybody all men at least of military age had been in the military and were well aware of the class system because it is like officers, um, you know, are usually from the, the wealthier classes, you know, the, the, not wealthy, wealthy, upper middle class still can't afford to get them out (laughs) of military, um, (laughs) military, uh, service, quote unquote service, um, Service to the military-industrial complex, I'll say, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, They can't manage to get them out of that. But, yeah, so the officers are the upper-middle classes, and the enlisted folks are usually, you know, working-class folks. And, of course, the higher the skill level, the higher the training needed to uh, do a particular job, you know, the more likely someone would would need to go to, you know, some kind of schooling for it that's more than the military could train you for I think that would be another challenge in writing
1: a show like MASH now is because everybody is enlisted into the military or chooses to serve in the military even if they're duped and we can argue about you are going to have way more intelligent things to say about this than I am but you know even if they were sort of you know, coerced or fed like a certain narrative about it. There's a certain level of choice, whereas there's like a lot of sympathy for Hawkeye because he didn't have a choice, and a lot of the other people that are there.
2: Um. Yeah, yeah. So let's let's um let's talk about this as like our sort of last thing of this episode, and then we're gonna jump into even more detail in the next one. But I think the the draft. And the stop-loss policy are really important aspects of, um, of our U.S. reality that we need to um, really talk about. Because the reason why so many people could relate to MASH is because there was a draft still going on during the first few years of its run. And so pretty much everyone who watched that show knew what military experience was like or, you know, knew knew what military life was like or knew somebody in their immediate family who knew what military life was like. It was relatable as fuck. Um, it was like, you know, just ubiquitous. Military service was ubiquitous with U.S. life. And um, that led to... Um, outcry against the war becoming ubiquitous (laughs) with us life and the government that really wanted to keep having wars and making money off of resources it pulled out of other countries and out of like having power strategically in different regions all over the world was like hey let's um let's not make it so easy for people to be outraged about the wars. Let's make it voluntary to join the military, kinda. And uh, <laughs> and so like they did, they 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 got rid of the draft, and you know they instituted what they what they um, called the all volunteer, you know, all volunteer force, all volunteer service whatever it's called, and um, I'm gonna get the dates wrong on this. It was I want to say in the in the in seventy four, is when the draft was gotten rid of. And so, what came into effect right after the draft was gotten rid of was the first stop loss policy. And the stop-loss policy essentially said that anybody who was already in the military, if, the, if there was a need for them, like during times of war, uh, the government could, uh, the commander-in-chief could keep them. And if they were still, even if they had gotten off of active duty and they were still within the eight-year window Of the active duty contract that, you know, we all, everyone who enlists signs an eight year contract um, with X number of years active service and the remainder of the eight would be considered inactive reserve component service, either where you're just like out there running around as a civilian or if you're drilling with a reserve or National Guard unit, either way. There's an eight-year window, so if you're in that eight-year window, or um, it's or there's a war on, uh, the government can be all like you're staying, and that is what happened to me. So I so much related to Hawkeye and to all of these other draftees. Um, because by the time my second deployment rolled around and I was not prepared for there to be a second deployment in my life, I was super bitter and super sarcastic about it, and my attitude was just like Hawkeyes in the first episode where he um, watches Trapper open a letter and say, oh, it's bad news, and his response is like, you know what? Are they, what? What do they do? They can't draft you again. How bad could the news be? And my whole attitude during that second deployment was like, What can they do? Stop lost me and send me back to Iraq. Like I'm already here. They've already done their worst. <laughs> Actually, the worst they could have done was stop paying me, which they did do for a few weeks during my first deployment. But that was admittedly my fault. I did call that non-commissioned officer, a fucking liar, because she was one. Yeah, but we won't get into that. But that was, that was, you know, that was during my, that that was very Hawkeye of me, because it was, you know, halfway or more than halfway through that first deployment, and I really was losing my mind, Um, because war is maddening. It's, you know, you're basically just walking around in a completely life-threatening situation that you're supposed to be treating as normal, And the people who are in charge of you don't really know anything about what you're doing there or why, but you're supposed to respect them and trust them. And meanwhile, they're mostly idiots and assholes. And, um, you know, you really don't know what could happen, but you know that, you know, anything could happen. You know, you could die. You know, you could, you know, get in trouble for something stupid and, you know, like, First and foremost, if you're paying attention, that it's all really for nothing. It's all for profit. Senseless destruction. Get the picture. Senseless destruction. Exactly. Yes, and that's a quote. That so so yeah. Senseless destruction is is the is the words used by Hawkeye in um in a later episode. So we'll talk more about plot. And, um, you know, different sort of nuances. But we wanted to kind of just just do a quick little gloss over of some of these major reasons why this show held, at least for me, held my attention for 11 fucking seasons in a row. I did not watch anything other than MASH for the whole time I was watching it. It was, I went deep. I think I started
1: watching in January, like, kind of early in January, and then you probably picked up a couple weeks after me, and we finished, I think, within a week of each other. Um, I powered through. But, yeah, it was the same thing. It was like my whole life was just MASH. Smoking
2: weed and watching MASH every night. Smoking weed, watching MASH. Smoking weed, watching MASH. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. We should watch Clerks again. I know. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> speaking speaking of all the pop culture. So um, we would really like it if everyone who listens to this podcast would watch MASH and have your friends and family watch it too because it's super relevant and we need to be aware of why our culture, why our, the U.S. is so fucking racist and why it's been so successful at perpetuating racist exploitation literally everywhere but it's been really really good at reproducing it here in the states Um, what we're seeing right now these days is such a direct outcome of those wars that were happening and being commented on being depicted in that show um, 50 years ago And, uh, you know, I think that it would for those for those people who feel like you're kind of taking crazy pills out there and like like there's absolutely no accurate depiction of how maddening this shit is and how fucked up it is. Like there is one. Watch it. Let us know what you think and like talk to your friends and family about all the ideas
1: I mean it was such a phenomenon it was the biggest show on tv like i mean we already mentioned that last episode and it's almost like its cultural legacy obviously hasn't totally been erased but um yeah it's just like maddening in a way that's why like i feel like rediscovering it for like a new generation is kind of important even if you know it There are are things that are a little outdated humor-wise and things, and we'll get into some of that that stuff in the next episode. But, like, it is really, you know, don't forget about MASH. Don't you forget about (laughs) MASH.
0: Don't, 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 don't,
2: don't you. All right, we're going to stop that. But for real, though, yeah, don't forget about MASH and come back and, uh, and you know, com- leave, leave us comments. Let us know what you think about this shit that we're talking about, because we are we're having these conversations because we want everyone to have these conversations. We want this country to stop being so surprised and clutching its pearls when we have shit like white supremacists killing um, Asian sex workers And we have, like, insurrection attempts at the Capitol. And we have, like, just deeply racist policing. And and we have a military-industrial complex that is continually funded by both parties. Um, You know, Joe Biden is no better than any previous president when it comes to foreign policy. So, you know keep paying attention to MASH and to um to the the ongoing wars, but it's like remember that we used to not that long ago have like compelling cultural commentary about the military that was mainstream in this fucking nation.
1: And that I think showed us like the human cost of being deployed that we don't see anymore because especially from my civilian perspective, like it's, it's shoved to the side. It's not part of my reality. It's not something I have to think about. Um, You have to think about it every goddamn day. And like, at least if nothing else that show shows you like what it is like psychologically to fucking be put in that situation.
2: Yeah, it really is. Like nobody tells you when you join the military that Um, You know, you're signing up for an experience that's going to impact your literal entire life. Um, They're just like, oh, it'll be a really good life experience and adventure and blah, blah, blah. But they're not like, hey, you don't ever get to get rid of this identity for the rest of your life. And they don't ever talk about um, what it's like to be owned by the government. Uh, And I so, yeah, I think the show does a great job of of of. Making that super felt and helping me feel a little bit seen, you know, as a disgruntled veteran.
1: And helping me understand as a disgruntled civilian.
2: Yeah, I, I'm glad that that's happening. Uh, so we'll, yeah, all right, friends, we'll continue to uh, think about this shit. Well, when we hope you'll join us for our next episode in which we go back in to mashlandia and after that we'll be back to guests and stuff but um but we really are we're really uh we feel like this shit's important man
1: this is important man and um i'll include some links in the show notes too if you want to learn more about the context of the korean war because you know i'm a librarian i went down a big research hole um some cool articles <laughs> i found about the show a really cool op-ed that a surgeon wrote about how Hawkeye set an example for how or how she could deal with coronavirus with dark humor. Yeah. And maybe I'll even make a list of my favorite episodes since there's a lot of episodes. If people just kind of want to get a flavor, we might make a list maybe from the second one. But anyway, there'll be stuff in the show notes in both episodes.
2: We'll figure it out. We'll talk amongst ourselves and we'll put it out there and, um, yeah, thanks for listening, if you're still with us. Yeah, if you're still <laughs> and, um, here. and if you're not, you know, like, that's cool, too. We love you anyway. We're, we're just, we love you like that. <laughs> and, uh, and we're going to, we'll figure out what kind of music is going to happen next. So surprise to all of us. Woot.
0: I bombed Korea every night. My engine sank into the salty sky. I didn't know if I would live or die
2: co-produced and co-hosted by Sarah Baranowskis and Joy Damiani. Music for this episode has been my covers of Suicide is Painless by Johnny Mandel and I Bombed Korea by Cake. Thanks so much for listening, and we hope you'll join us again next episode for the continuation of our MASH talk, where we continue to go down our MASH hole or up our MASH hole, depending on how you have envisioned that. Anyway, I've said too much. Take good care of yourselves. We're really happy that you're listening. And, uh, you know, we just hope you're staying safe out
0: there. Happy Apocalypsing to you.